already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would fill our hearts with your spirit and work by and with the word in such a way that we would rejoice in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Name, address, tribe. We had been robbed while we were living in Dar es Salaam. Uh, so I had gone down to the main traffic police station to get our licenses renewed. And I was terrified. Uh, you see, the, uh, the national police who carried AK-47s and wore khaki uniforms, uh, they were sweet country boys. I would give them rides to their duty post. But the traffic police, who were unarmed except for a whistle, who wore starched white uniforms, we were terrified they could pull you over, impound your vehicle, put you in jail, and leave you there until you paid a bribe. So the last thing I wanted to do was to walk into their central headquarters. But I did, walked up to the desk. Uh, there was a tall desk sergeant, like desk sergeants everywhere. He peered over his glasses and said, state your business. And I said, sir, our licenses were stolen in a robbery. I need to replace them. He went, hmm, pulled out a big ledger book, slapped it down on the desk, name, address, tribe. I said, excuse me, sergeant. Uh, I'm an American, we don't have tribes. He said, nonsense, son. You just don't know who your people are. <laughs> now, I, I thought about that a lot. Thought about that a lot. Who are our people? Well, the Apostle Paul reminds us in this passage. He says, we are those of whom Christ Jesus has made his own. We're the people of God. We belong to him. And Paul, who has just earlier in the passage expressed his credo, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being coming conformed to him in his death, Paul now says, 
this is how we're going to go about it. Because Christ Jesus has taken a hold of us, we're going to press on. We're going to run together. We're going to stand firm. First of all, we're going to press on. On verse 12, down to verse 16, he talks in terms of a race metaphor. Not that I've already obtained this, he says, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, focusing on what lies ahead, I press on toward the prize of the upward calling of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I've got eyes for one thing only, and that is the upward call of Christ. What's this prize that he's talking about? Well, you could think about it in terms of sanctification, becoming more like Christ. Or you might think about it in eschatological categories. Maybe the best way is simply to say that Paul is talking about the culmination of salvation. That day when we will see Jesus face to face and our broken bodies of humiliation will be made whole and we will experience shalom totally for the first time in our lives. And Paul says, I'm going to ignore everything else. Beloved, it's a dangerous thing to turn aside when you're running a race. Um, 1954, the uh, August, the Vancouver British Commonwealth Games. I know none of you were around. I was only five months old at that time. Uh, but it was a, a miracle mile, they said. Roger Bannister, the first man to break the four-minute mile, and John Landy, another Australian who broke it three and a half weeks after him, were going to go head-to-head. The gun went off, the runners took off. For three and a half leap, um, laps, John Landy was leading Bannister by 10 yards, which in running the mile might as well be um, an entire lap. There was no way that Bannister was going to catch him, except that at precisely that moment, Landy looked to his left to see where Bannister was, and Bannister flew by on the right. And for his troubles, Landy not only lost the race, but if you go to Vancouver, there is a bronze statue of him looking the wrong way. <laughs> Listen, when the enemy throws up your failures and your past regrets in your face, and he will, that's how he attacks us, you look him straight in the eye and say, you don't know the half of it, but Jesus Christ has taken hold of me. I belong to him. And I am forgetting what lies behind. I am focusing on what lies ahead. I'm going to press on in the power of the Spirit. Get off the track in the name of Jesus. You and I are called to press on towards that ultimate call of Christ on our lives. One of my boyhood heroes was a Tanzanian runner, John Stephen Aquari. 1968, the Mexico um, Olympic Games. 57 runners went off after the gun went out. 12 miles into the race, 19 kilometers, uh, there was a mix-up in the pack of runners. John Stephen Aquari was knocked over. He hit the ground hard, wrenched his uh, shoulder, and dislocated his knee. Now, if that had been me, I would have been out of there. But he put his knee back into place, 
stumbled to his feet and hobbled and jogged the rest of the way. He not only finished last, he finished an hour and five minutes after the race had ended. Uh, some of the reporters heard about this and they said, uh, we've got to go ask him this. Why did you do it? You knew you couldn't win. And John Stephen Acori said, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start a race. They sent me to finish. Beloved, Jesus has not called you to begin the race. He's called you to run it, as Scott read earlier from Hebrews, uh, to run it with perseverance for the joy set before us because of what Jesus has done on the cross and to run it until we run into his arms. We are to press on. But not only so, Paul says, we run it together. We are not in this alone. If anything that I'm taking away from the service this morning was that joyful time of testimonies and hearing how you have stood by one another through sunshine and storm, through joy and through sorrow, the people of God run the race together. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Uh, every fall during Christian Mind, Jay Green gets up and gives a lecture to the incoming students on tradition. And he says, what would you think if I told you that I'm not here to teach you to think for yourself? I want you to think like me. And the students are a little taken aback. And Jay will go on to explain that what we're trying to do at the college is a master-apprentice relationship. Paul says, you want to follow Jesus? Great! Follow me! Imitate me! Imitate those who walk in the Lord as I do. Because you and I learn to follow Jesus by following brothers and sisters who have been walking with him before us. And it's important that we do that Paul says there are some terrible examples out there. Uh, there are those who are enemies of the cross. This is not the same group earlier in chapter 3, the Judaizers. Uh, these individuals seem to be captivated by their own visceral appetites. They live for the present. They have no concern for the future or that they will one day stand before a holy God. Paul says, steer clear, but follow me as I follow Christ. The author of Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 7, puts it this way. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who are your heroes? Who are the people that have shaped your walk with the Lord? I can think back, of course, to my parents and my older sister and her husband have been super influences. Uh, Dr. Art Holmes at Wheaton College when I was a student. Dr. Robert G. Rayburn uh, when I was in seminary and all the professors I had. People who shaped me with mission to the world. Uh, people who shaped me as a young lawyer trying to figure out what it meant to serve Jesus and practice law, um, when mentors come along and take a hold of us, they can help shape us into mature followers of Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you are a young person and you haven't got a mentor, 
you need to be proactive, go find one. You go up to Dr. Tate and you say, would you be my mentor? Or Dr. Voiles, or Dr. Finch, or one of the elders, or one of the people that you respect in the congregation, and you say to them, I want you to disciple me. I promise you, they will not say no, right? Uh, I was a young attorney up in Michigan, uh, just out of law school, going to a small Dutch Reformed church because it was the only option. And one of the elders came up to me and he said, what are you doing Saturday morning at 5.30? And I said, I'm sleeping. What else would I be doing at 5.30? And he said, no, you're not. I'm coming by. We're going to a prayer meeting. And I asked him, who prays at 5.30 in the morning? The Gideons. Who knew? So he drug me off to a Gideon prayer meeting. They pray on their knees on the hardcore cold floor for an hour pouring out their hearts for the churches in the area and all of the elementary and middle and high schools in the area, praying that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forth in the power of the Spirit. I learned to pray in those early morning prayer meetings with the Gideons. A few months went by, Lyle came up and said, uh, what are you doing Tuesday night? 7.30, I said, I'm watching the news and eating dinner. He said, no, you're not, you're coming with me. Where are we going this time? Bible study fellowship. I said to him, listen, Lyle, I'm a Wheaton grad. I don't need to study the Bible. He said, no, I actually thought that that's probably why it would do you some good. <laughs> so off we went for the next five years, every Tuesday night for two hours, studying the English Bible. I'd spend 10 hours a week on the lesson. Listen, seminary is great, but it doesn't teach you the Bible. I learned it in those Tuesday evening Bible studies, and he had me leading worship, and he had me teaching Sunday school and catechizing the senior high kids, and before I knew it, Kathy and I were appearing before the consistory to tell them of our call to the ministry, and Lyle was the only one who wasn't surprised. He thought he saw a smidgen of potential, and he was determined to help me be as much as I could. Beloved, find a mentor and be a mentor. Find a young person, a young woman, a young man, someone that you know, someone whose life you can pour into. We run this race together as we press on for the upward call of Jesus Christ. But finally, Paul says, we stand firm. Now, I know he's mixing his metaphors, but he's an apostle. He's allowed to do that. <laughs> Paul says... And this is remarkable. He says, our commonwealth is in heaven. You and I are not just citizens of North Georgia. Um, we're not just citizens of the United States of America. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And it's erupted into time and space history. And Paul says, our commonwealth, our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await eagerly a savior. And the amazing thing to me is that Paul says, look what this savior is going to do when he comes. He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power by which he subjected all things under his feet. 
The power that Jesus used to defeat all of his and our enemies is the very power that will one day transform us into the glorious likeness of Christ. Now, when you're their age, that seems a long way off. I always tell college kids, enjoy it now, it's all downhill from here, right? <laughs> no, every time I wash my hair, there's, there's less of it. <laughs> Things don't work the way, Scott and I were talking this morning, things just, your bodies don't work the way they used to. But here's the thing, one day our lowly bodies of humiliation will be transformed. That is our hope, that is our confidence. And Paul says, we eagerly await it. What does it mean to eagerly await? Think back to fourth grade, the night before the last day of school. It was the one day of the year that we were allowed to wear tennis shoes and shorts and t-shirts to school. So I had it all laid out. PF flyers, so I could run faster and jump higher. You'd have to be my age to, to get that reference. Um, my best t-shirt, khaki shorts. I was so excited I couldn't sleep. Baseball games lay before me, piles of books, road trips with the family. It was so glorious, I couldn't wait. Beloved, do we think that way about the coming of Jesus? Do you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, I'm going to live this day to the full because he is coming and soon. I'm going to be missional in my approach to my vocation because all truth is God's truth and every calling is sacred, C.S. Lewis says, when it's offered as an act of worship to the Lord. Am I going to diligently pursue the means of grace, hearing the word read and preached, participating in the Lord's Supper, receiving Grace through faith as we feed spiritually on the Lord Jesus, seeing the sacrament of baptism administered to our covenant children as they are given that covenant promise that God will be a God to them and to their children after them. Are we making diligent use of the means of grace? And are we looking for him to appear? One of my favorite books is by Alfred Lansing. It's called Endurance. It's the story of one of the worst explorers history has ever known, Ernest Shackleton. Every single one of Shackleton's expeditions failed miserably. In fact, his last expedition, uh, he didn't even make it to Antarctica. The ship got stuck in the ice before they even got to land. It was crushed November 1915 by the pack ice. And Shackleton, who was a terrible explorer, was an awesome leader. So he organized his men. They took three of the whale boats, set them up as sledges. And between November and April, they walked across the pack ice till they reached Elephant Island. Try and find it on a map. It's the middle of nowhere. And there they took two of the whale boats, turned them over, made a hut, and then Shackleton took the other boat with a couple of guys, and they sailed 720 miles by dead reckoning to South Georgia Island through the worst oceans in the world. It was a feat so difficult it wasn't repeated until about four years ago for a National Geographic special. <laughs> it was an amazing accomplishment, but again, Shackleton blew it. They landed on the wrong side. So they had to, in whale... Um, in uh, not whale boots, but uh, rubber boots without crampons, without decent ropes, without ice axes, make their way 
up ice and snow to 4,500 feet and do a traverse of 32 miles that is so difficult it wasn't repeated till the 1950s. And when they finally got above the whaling station, all they could do was slide down the glacier on their pants because they had no way to stop themselves. And they got to the bottom. Shackleton walks into the master's office and he says, my name is Shackleton. Could I borrow a boat? And then he passed out. When he came to, they gave him a boat. He tried three times to get back to his men. Finally, on the third try, he made it. And he was amazed that all of the men were standing on the shore, packed and ready to go. It's like Covenant College students right before spring break. <laughs> but, you know, they were hurrying to get them on the ship so they could get out before the ice closed in. And finally, the next day, he went to Frank Wilde, his second in command, and he said to him, why were you waiting on the shore? And Wilde said, well, every morning after breakfast, I tell the men to do their chores, and then I would say, roll up your sleeping bags. The boss may come today. And they would go out and wait for his appearing. Listen, we have one greater than Shackleton who's going to appear again. And when he does, he's going to heal our broken hearts. He's going to restore our broken bodies. He is going to wipe away every tear. And he is going to make everything sad come untrue. As a glorious kingdom of God and the new heaven and the new earth becomes a consummated reality. That is what we look forward to. That is why we press on. That's why we run together and we will stand firm until we see that day. By God's grace. Pray with me. Almighty God and Father, we pray that you by your Holy Spirit would fill our hearts with joy as we run the race set before us. That you would enable us to run it faithfully. To encourage each other along the way. And fa Father, to stand firm in the truth of your glorious gospel. Until... We see Jesus' face. We pray this in his name. Amen.